Mosaic Brief 3. Welcome to another brief meant to be easier for me. Mainly me. <laughs> I can't remember how to podcast. So, recording last episode, I rambled off topic way too many times. And while I'd love to rework them into a theme or build bridges between concepts, but then I'd never get around to getting them out. So here's a collection of some of the excerpts that didn't make the final cut. If I remember, I'll try to put in some sort of audio cue to indicate the cuts. Most are still tangentially related to parenting, but I digressed too long and too much. They're considerably less considered, so I reserve the right to revise my views on reflection but I share them to show how much raw surplus goes into the first recording and how the theme ends up appearing in the edit. And I'm not going to put them in, but my original disclaimers ran a lot longer. I can sum them up by saying, don't apply principles to the point of absurdity. If it doesn't apply to the situation or to an extreme set of facts, that's fine. Use discretion and reason. The episode was obviously geared towards those inclined to celebrate Mother's Day. If your relationship with your mom is seriously dysfunctional, controlling, or toxic, then I'm not asking you to prioritize replication, right? In many ways, that's the positive possibility that the larger Batman mythos represents, learning to extract light from darkness by understanding it. The contrapositive of following heroes and role models is to not follow villains. And there, the value of coming close to reality also applies. If you dismiss them as unspeakably evil and cartoonishly nefarious, then you can never imagine yourself in their shoes, never picture yourself breaking bad as they do. That misapprehension of malevolence is how you alienate and excuse. Argue that they are others to be treated differently and at a distance. This is arguably why so many are up in arms about Superman snapping Zod's neck. He appears human and has our sympathies, but barely care if the sentient Steppenwolf isn't saved. When I started looking at villain behavior, it just makes no sense whatsoever for a criminal to continue to try to be successful in a world where they're never successful. The heroes are always coming out on top. But even that kind of storyline, if you research a little bit about how do these guys and girls, the villains, continue to have these opportunities, you see that even that seemingly irrational behavior has a really good explanation in economics. And basically, it's that the legal system just cannot contain the villains because the threats to the villains are not viable threats. There's no death penalty in the comics. As far as I could tell, there's only ever been one execution of a villain in a comic and it happened in I think in the 40s or maybe the early 50s the villain was a worm Mr. Mind and so they killed the worm but none of the villains ever die they go to prison they always break out so the punishments aren't effective the ability to keep the criminal from re-engaging in criminal activity is so pathetic that the villains keep trying they might as well because there's no real deterrent system in the comics that's an excerpt from an interview with Dr. Brian O'Rourke, an economist, professor, and author of Why Doesn't Superman Take Over the World? He features and a lot of the ideas cut from last episode, so you'll be hearing more from him a little later, as well as from Dr. Christopher Robichaud, a Harvard professor discussing how these films illustrate philosophical principles. Superhero stories in general, this is a theme that I've often talked about, have a good side and a bad side. The good side is they often give us stories about individuals being empowered and trying to do good. And they sort of inspire us to do that. The bad side is that they sometimes create the impression that if you're just a good person, you will do good things. And we know that that's not true. 
Thank you. <laughs> that last line could be considered a thesis for what distinguishes more nuanced superhero stories. Yet, many want to paint our heroes perfect, place them on a pedestal, and argue they are our betters in every way. You may remember the issues with this mindset from our growth episode. We talked about this tendency in the context of intelligence and growth before, and it applies in the moral realm as well. Just as we must be tested and grow in our attributes, the exercise of virtue is just that, an exercise, not something reserved just for the gifted and talented. Here, the host of Hidden Brain and the Nobel Prize winning Professor James Heckman highlight this human habit. Angela Duckworth, she brought up the German philosopher Nietzsche had said about how we all in some ways want to believe that genius and talent essentially spring out of nowhere, spring out of the soil. And he apparently said the performer has an incentive to want to suggest that his or her genius was natural, that it just required no effort because that makes the performer look good. But he had an important insight about the audience, that the audience also, in some ways, wants to believe that grit and hard work and perseverance were not necessary because what the audience wants to say is that the person who is playing this piano so beautifully before me, this person just has a gift. And I can't play the piano that well because I just don't have the same gift. And so seeing things as natural, in some ways, relieves us of the obligation or the hope or the possibility that we might be able to match that performance. And so there's almost a conspiracy in society to believe that good outcomes come naturally as opposed through, you know, through conscientiousness, persistence, and hard work. I'll add to that story, a true story. At Los Alamos during the Second World War, when these brilliant physicists were all trying to develop atomic energy and make it usable for military purposes, many brilliant people, and they were in these laboratories working, that everybody in the course of the day, they would sit around around and play volleyball and they would appear to be just just naturally just very bright and papers would show up and calculations would get done and then if you went there at night you'd realize in every office people were staying up all night doing the work but they didn't want to admit how hard they were working to anybody else <laughs> Even if some people want to project the image that their achievements come naturally, Jim says it's clear that conscientiousness and other character skills play a huge role in success. It is inevitable that those with power and influence at some point will be presented with moral dilemmas to which even principled, well-meaning people struggle with. The only way to escape that struggle is to lack any sense of introspection or reflection, or to exist in fantasy alone. Ironically, it is in fiction that we find one of the best ways to explore and exercise our dilemmas and judgment. Stories confront us with questions of how we would, could, or should act, and the more realistic and grounded they are, the more instructive they can be in terms of application. Clive Thompson paraphrases Northrop Fry on why we have myths. News and facts are the things that are happening or that happened. Mythology is what happens. It is the template for the things we all go through all the time. It is the sort of platonic shape that lurks behind our individual experiences that help us make sense of them. All that said, let's jump to our first discussion cut from the episode. Just wish it was more simple. My baby boy. Nothing was ever simple. Another point that I need to complicate is the idea of the Paragon. I hand wave it in favor of practical, applicable life skills. The way that superheroes learn and practice virtue are essentially the same mechanisms for us. We're no longer discussing the defiance of physics, but in the realm of real decision-making, ethics, psychology, cognition, emotion, and so on, identical to ours in most cases. So pedestals confound the ability to learn those virtues. 
However, on the other hand, there is still a separate psychological reason for promoting paragons, ideal representations absent of error or defect, and that mostly comes from the concept of elevation, as described by Jonathan Haidt and his colleagues, and which somewhat overlaps with the pre-existing studies on the effects and experience of awe. Haidt describes social cognition along three dimensions or axes, closeness, hierarchy, and what he called moral elevation. That that axis would essentially be awe, looking at saintly or godlike behavior, versus disgust, revulsion at wrongdoing or the descent into evil. Height proposes and observes that feats of moral purity can create the same sense of awe we experience in observing nature, the large, the amazing, and transcendental, and likewise create similar short-term positive effects, greater unity, greater good feeling, greater encompassing tribal identity, etc. And while that is still a valuable experience not to be discounted, compared to the hard work of actually being moral and developing character, the effect is negligible to irrelevant. In practical terms, going to the Grand Canyon or a national park may take your breath away, but not necessarily turn you into an environmentalist, or indeed activate any positive action in any way at all. Conversely, the environmentalist on the front lines facing the filth and the greed and apathy isn't being swept away in an awe-inspiring moment every second, but doing more practical good for all than, say, the whale watcher. Moral elevation and awe are observable and measurable, but it has a surprisingly short half-life. The same experience will fail to summon the same level of neurochemical awe in astonishingly few repetitions. Nonetheless, the story we tell ourselves about the awe, the experience, and any according transformation can manifest effectively permanent changes. To tie this to parenting, I think many parents are completely in awe of their child at first, and that feeling can be profoundly affecting. But it isn't too long before we've adapted, and some might say, over it. We can't operate in a constant state of all, and if we did, there'd be no observable peaks and valleys to our experience. Nonetheless, we will repeatedly tell ourselves the story of that first feeling and its impact to create a narrative to be consistent with. And it's that ritual repetition and story that's key to consistent continual impact. I once saw the foolish criticism that Jonathan on the Mountain was wasted because it was nothing Clark didn't already know. Well, putting Plato's epistemology aside that all learning is remembering, this critique misunderstands parenting as mere information. As if a book, a video, a diary, or some other download of facts and figures is what fixes a child. No, parenting is much more about routine and relationships, as our factors of availability and affection address. Rote repetition of the things the child already knows in order to amend behaviors or mend hurting hearts. As the vision is mostly a memory, it is, of course, what Clark already knows. But the synthesis of what we know and what we believe and what we feel is the relational exercise exercise of parenting. Every individual knows that there is a gap between our aspirations and our actions, what we know and what we do, and that is not just a matter of intellect or factual knowledge. Here, two Vatican astronomers give an illustration of how relationship is more than just the exchange of information. When I was a little kid, nine years old, I remember a rainy Sunday afternoon, and you couldn't go out to play, and my mom came out with a deck of cards and dealt them out, and we played rummy together. Now, my mom can beat me in cards because I'm nine years old. That wasn't the point of the game. The point of the game was this was her way of telling me she loved me in a way that she couldn't just say, son, I love you because I'm nine years old. I'm going to squirm and go, oh, mom, and run away. 
<laughs> in a way, being able to do science and come to an intimate knowledge of creation is God's way of playing with us. And it's that kind of play that is one way that God tells us how he loves us. So is it invented? It's as invented as the card game. Hmm. But is it an act of love? It's as much an act of love as the card game. Playing games with God. Yeah, or God playing games with us. That's true. Made a universe that has that fascinating attraction about it. Doing science to me is a search for God, and I'll never have the final answers because the universe participates in the mystery of God. Now, the point isn't that you believe this too. Rather, that in a faith where their deity is by definition the ideal, the ideal image isn't of an info dump for those who follow. They are far more engaged by the idea of a relational interaction and play as opposed to providing the information outright. The card game conveyed more from mom than a recitation of son i love you i want to tell a tale of salt but look that up yourself again it isn't just the information or the intellect the following clip describes why people intelligent enough to pass the ged still suffer worst outcomes James Heckman is a professor at the University of Chicago. In 2000, he won the Nobel Prize in Economics. Some of his early work focused on programs like the GED that are designed to give young people a second chance. Jim found that these programs were succeeding in getting young people to do well in tests, but failing when it came to improving their outcomes in life. It prompted him to ask broader questions about the American educational system. I realized that the whole educational establishment, the establishment that looked at test scores and that valued school and valued people by these test scores really was just missing important dimensions of human behavior. And so that brought me onto a subject which has fascinated me and which I think is really important for success and understanding success and failure. And that is the notion of what I call non-cognitive skills. By non-cognitive skills, I meant skills that weren't measured by these tests. And what I found, and that surprised me, was that those non-cognitive skills were extremely important. And then when you think about it, you say, of course, these are important. You go back to everything you ever heard from the time you were a child, the Aesop's fables, the tortoise and the hare, and Teddy Roosevelt saying it's the man of grit and the person who would go down, who gets back up again and tries. And all of the mottos we quote to our children and that many presidents and leaders have told us for centuries. I mean, it's in many religious teachings. So I said, this is obviously true, but it turned out that in psychology at that time, there was a sense that somehow personnel and the subject of personality was kind of a dark and unrigorous corner. Whereas the IQ test, there we actually had machinery to measure it. We had ways to score tests and so forth and so on. That started a lifetime investigation on the social and emotional skills. The GDs are very deficient in those. Now that we have good measures of those, we see that they're far worse than the high school graduates. And there's evidence, by the way, that staying in school, that working through, will build those skills. Skills. Jim says there is another word for these skills character. One time in American education, I'm talking a long time ago, when Horace Mann was devising the first common schools for all Americans, character training was literally part of the curriculum. I think Horace Mann has a quote in the 1840s when he was setting up this movement. Basically, he said something which says it all, really, that reading, writing, and arithmetic is but a small portion of what we teach in school. What we're really teaching is character. We're teaching children how to stay on task to control their emotions, to work with others, to persist. And so this whole bundle of attributes we know are important in life, and the common school was designed basically to foster all of those. 
All of these day-to-day exercises differ from a singular moment of awe or dose of novel insight, but is what nonetheless builds successful outcomes. Of course, that's a harder story to tell, so the inclination is to say that success arose out of genius, awe, or info. As we discussed earlier, we do this to everything all the time. So, of course, we do the same to our superheroes. I won't deny that Superman can and does provide a sense of elevation. My contention is that it's not his sole or even his best purpose, that he is more interesting conveying purpose, mostly because that's something more substantive and enduring to affect real-world impact. Historically, Superman was not viewed as an especially moral figure in any serious sense for most of the mythos. Society, by and large, had other sources of guidance on that, before being concerned about what would Superman do. To the extent that Superman was a role model, he mostly reflected the consensus of the times without much distinction from other similarly situated heroes. That is, basically any hero character, for broad consumption, would project essentially the same values. And that made it easy to understand mottos like truth, justice, and the American way as shorthand for pre-existing common quote-unquote understanding. Superman's distinction as a moral figure mostly arose from much more contemporary marketing as a means of distinguishing this character from others and in turn getting deified by those desperate to have a moral figurehead divorced from conventional or traditional sources of guidance. This meant the imposition of perfection and righteousness beyond the historic mythos, and that meant, especially as it began, a sort of caricature of what it meant to be good. People desperate for goodness, lacking it in their lives, writing an idol of goodness to resolve that lack. It's easy to see where the pedestal comes from and why perfection is projected from those who lack. People who lack a mother, like Billy, imagine that absent mom is perfect in every way. Yet people who are close to their mothers, like Diana, are all too aware of their humanity, limits, and so on. This perfection projection is presented by its advocates as a good thing, the unreachable and unobtainable ideal to aspire to, always above and calling us higher. And the accompanying awe and moral elevation may support some of that sentiment. But the fatal flaw in this to me is that Superman is decidedly not divine or intended to transcend all understanding. The tenet of his psychology is that he is essentially human and the product of his upbringing. What perfection proponents are essentially saying is that being Being a good person is unreachable and unobtainable, and such position must be supported by Superman always succeeding morally, never susceptible to dilemmas and outcomes which may challenge that success or perfection. Accordingly, morality is simplified, codified, and absolute. Yet any adult with an iota of experience understands that that isn't how we learn virtue, that facts become complicated, and it takes little imagination to come up with plausible challenges to any inflexible rule. One way to illustrate that might be to look at the Aristotelian golden mean, virtues on an axis or a spectrum between vices on either side, but I'm already too many tangents deep to talk about that. You can read that on your own. In short, if we already have decades of society taking Superman's goodness for granted in the bank, isn't it worth examining that assumption to start to illuminate what it takes to be good 
good and virtuous, mechanically, elementally, in practice and in action, and beyond mere presupposition. I believe this work attempts that, which is why it's one of the most compelling portrayals to me, even after a lifelong consumption of Superman content. Of course, I enjoy the awe too, though that can lead to feet creep, but that's another tangent for another time, but actually entering the realm of the applicable beyond slogans and sound bites, easy answers and sophistry is content which can affect and endure. Just wish it was more simple. My baby boy. Nothing was ever simple. We can compare how Superman sees women and others with Batman. We've already talked about how Clark stood up to harassment, but overall, he shows a good example of seeing and respecting women as persons, first and foremost. We've already mentioned standing up for Chrissy. In Man of Steel, Clark is never condescending to Lois. We've already talked about how he respects her counsel, but two other times that get taken for granted is one, when Lois agrees to go with him to meet Zod, and two, when Lois is a part of the joint strike plan at the end. If Lois is just a damsel in distress waiting to be saved, Superman would object to her presence in both places. If he saw her as nothing but a liability, he'd tell her to stay back for her own safety. But Clark sees that she has real autonomy, courage, and the ability to contribute. Her presence was not just courageous, but vital to Clark's escape, uploading Jor-El, and key in diagnosing the failure to activate the Phantom Drive. Another easy-to-overlook woman is Feora. Not once does Clark assume her any less dangerous than the rest of the Kryptonians. There's no condescension, no flirty dance fighting, no derision for being female. Clark keeps an eye out for competence, first and foremost, and Feora has it. And of course, Clark sees and cares for his mother. In the infamous defense of her, you think you can threaten my mother. And in the aftermath, you can't be replaced, mom. In BVS, Clark sees and takes to heart Kahina's criticisms, wanting to meet her face-to-face -face at her request, to look him in the eye. Clark takes Senator Finch seriously, doesn't dismiss her as a shrill dame, and only engages her through the appropriate avenues of her request. Superman doesn't show up hovering outside her bedroom window as an uninvited intruder. He goes to the Senate, where he's been asked to come. Clark takes the mother of Caesar Santos's child seriously. He doesn't dismiss her as a woman, a minority, or associated to a criminal. He sees her as a hurting spouse and mom. And in the briefest of exchanges, Superman is only all business with Wonder Woman. When a litany of alternative comments could come to mind, and in fact do, when we look at how Bruce sees women differently. They catch his eye as something to ogle and pursue, be it at a fundraiser or an underground fighting fest. They remain anonymous and nameless to him, which is just as fine to him because he tells them who they are. I'm guessing I'm the first to see through that babe in the woods act. You don't know me, but I know a few women like you. Oh, I don't think you've ever known a woman like me. It's absurd the degree to which he declares intimate knowledge of Diana's nature. In Justice League, he looks past Martha's needs, and Lois is treated as a MacGuffin, not a person worth speaking to or commiserating with on screen. If you think for a second about Batman's plan to return Superman to life, who would that have the biggest effect upon other than Martha and Lois? It appears Batman doesn't even bother to consider their voices. Even in how his nightmares are haunted, he still doesn't see Martha. And Alfred hints at the fact that Bruce doesn't have any long-term, stable romantic prospects in his life. He's sleeping with women, not seeing them, not making them a permanent part of his life. 
By contrast, Clark lives with his fiancée and interacts with her continuously throughout the film. Now, there is someone Bruce sees with compassion, and that's the girl orphaned at Wayne Tower. And it's arguable that Bruce sees her as a reflection of himself first and foremost. Meanwhile, when Clark sees Adriana, it's quite possible his compassion comes from seeing a shadow of his mom being widowed being overwhelmed after the death of Jonathan. Look, both guys can do good. Both guys can save. When Superman saves women, they are reassured and returned to their communities, rescuing a woman from the fire and bringing her back to her source of support. When Batman saves women, they are left as terrified as the criminals he's hunting. But Batman sees half of humanity through his own pain and interests, while Clark seems to see them on their own terms, or at worst, through the lens of his mother. As in, how would I see this person if they were mom? If you're open to more people and exposed to their lives and stories, your compassion and identification grows. It's possible to interact even with your own mom through blinders and stereotypes, pain and personal interest. But do you want your mom to merely exist as a function? Or are you old enough to see her as a person? How would you like to be seen? Simply as a supplier of services or as a person? Learn to see. Just wish it was more simple. My baby boy. Nothing was ever simple. <laughs> I considered making an entirely Martha episode as she's appeared in three films, but I didn't, so I didn't get to discuss how brave Martha must have been to stand up to Zod. She knows how strong Kryptonians can be. She doesn't know that Clark is coming to save her. As far as she knows, no one is. She still tells Zod to take a hike. <laughs> The craft he arrived in, where is it? Go to hell. But I wanted to look at a later line in more detail. Mom, Zod said this codex he's looking for can actually bring my people back. Isn't that a good thing? I think this is easy to overlook, but it shows how much Martha loves Clark. Consider the context in which she says this. Martha's central fear expressly stated is that Kal-El's people might take him away. Zod has threatened the Earth and has had Clark taken away, albeit temporarily. This is the same Zod that attacked her, threatened her, tore up her home, and fought with her son. She knows nothing else about Zod. But when Clark shares this, Mom... Zod said this codex he's looking for can actually bring my people back. And Martha says, isn't that a good thing? Under a cynical and selfish lens, there is no way that this is a good thing. More Kryptonians mean more monsters like Zod. More Kryptonians mean more people to take Clark away from her. But Martha doesn't think like that. More Kryptonians means more beautiful people like Clark. More Kryptonians means her son doesn't have to feel so alone. More Kryptonians means a second chance for a lost people who could still take Clark away. The potential for good and beauty and benefit to her son outweighs the evil she experienced and confined to Zod. Martha is unwilling to paint all Kryptonians as Zod, but instead imagines them all like her beautiful Clark. It's a good thing primarily for Clark, but that makes it a good thing to her. That sounds like a hopeful mom to me. Just wish it was more simple. My baby boy. Nothing was ever simple. 
In the movie, Freddy's abuse of the relationship is fairly benign. He doesn't want to be picked on, he wants to be acknowledged, so he wants a superhero to show up and single him out as special. Of course, there are many ways in which that can go awry. Public acknowledgement turns him into a soft target, and his classmates into collateral damage to any supervillains who get wind of the relationship. But we're talking about a kid who doesn't seem to get the consequences of falsification. Yes, Freddy, shooting Billy in the face will prove his flesh is impervious to bullets if they bounce off. Think, Freddy, what will happen if they don't bounce off? <laughs> what happens if Billy's one weakness is being burned alive in a box? This lack of foresight and innocence is part of their charm. The weightlessness with which they receive and then abuse those powers for petty things like soft drinks and video games, and robbing ATMs and vandalizing vehicles. <laughs> This is also after the Justice League is a thing. After Bruce tells Waller, You should shut it down. My friends and I will do it for you. Even if Billy gets outed, he's unlikely to end up in a black site or stay there long before the Batman comes for him. But it isn't hard at all to imagine more compromising situations with pressure applied in more unpleasant ways. Freddy is more or less a good kid who idolizes superheroes and is a little drunk on the powers. He isn't especially manipulative or mean. But that said, even Freddy is possessive of Billy's powers. So wait, my identity's a secret, so no one I know can get hurt. Except when it makes you look cool, then then it's it's all good. Billy, it's not like they're super villains, they're just super douchebags. So you're breaking your own rule. Got it. <laughs> this thing is as much as mine as it is yours. Starting to think you think it's all your thing. This thing is as much mine as it is yours. As someone who shares a secret, even hero worshipper Freddy feels entitled to exploit Billy to his own ends. Now think through how it may have been for Clark, before Superman establishes superheroes as a social good. Anyone with your secret does not just have leverage over your identity and your powerless loved ones, but the ability to dramatically affect society or turn it against the metahuman based on the narrative surrounding the reveal. The narrative and framing matter. In Man of Steel, we can see how the answer to the same question can come two totally different ways. Jonathan says Clark is the answer to whether we are alone in the universe. The presentation is to punctuate the definitive effect his secret has on an age-old existential question. It gives Clark a sense of importance and destiny, a purpose behind his arrival and why he has to keep his secret in the meantime. Yet Zod answers the same question in a way befitting a horror film. You are not alone is not a source of comfort, belonging, or purpose, but dread, uncertainty, and fear. It is like you are laying there in the dark half asleep, only to become aware of an uninvited and unexpected presence. You are not alone. Anyone Clark shares his secret with gains both the responsibility and the power to shape the narrative of that. Lois Lane recognized that, which is why she said, let me tell your story. Someone else could tell the story a different way. Clark could be an abomination that refutes science, defies God, and threatens reality. Clark could be a deceiver, a spy, and the advanced agent of unknown alien entities beyond. Even well-meaning revelations can shape disclosures in a problematic way. They could claim Clark is an angel, or a patriot, or any other allegiance which may come with a whole host of expectations and anxieties. 
Actually, the abuses are comparatively clear-cut and easy to judge. Coming up with a bright line where the secret keeper has exploited Clark's trust wrongfully isn't the issue. The trickier and more interesting question is the responsible and well-meaning and principled person saddled with the secret and still conflicted on when to risk or justify exposure. While Freddy is a little forward with his claim on Billy's powers, he isn't entirely wrong in principle. If you're a good person trying to exercise virtue and you see suffering or evil preventable by the exercise of Clark's powers and all you have to do to stop that evil is exert some influence over Clark or to put his secret at some degree of risk, it becomes a decision-making question and a moral responsibility for you to have that secret and power. In some cases, it will be clear-cut and trivial. See something, say something, and Clark willingly stems the tide of evil. But in the real world, there are countless shades of gray which make it less clear when you should involve Clark, how much influence you should try to exert over him, and how much risk is it fair for you to take with his secret for the sake of the issue at hand. The entire thing gets thornier if Clark and you differ greatly on those issues. If the issues are partisan and passionate but not transcendent universals with broad consensus. That passion is a problem. You can think of people who have complete, sincere belief and confidence in some political position, social movement, or cause who would do so much with a Superman at their beck and call. If I'm going to be glib, for some of you, it would be a great temptation to ask Superman to secure you a certain cut of a certain movie, and that's a fairly benign fanaticism and favor. It's easy to imagine ones that push boundaries, especially once you open the door to a proclivity for vigilantism. Providing punishment for those who deserve it is an intoxicating enticement all too easy to justify or excuse. And again, I'm moving towards more obvious abuses when it's the close calls that are actually the issue. What is the minimum level of threat, the minimum level of harm or danger, and the minimum risk to Clark that's acceptable? These things are not so clear-cut. If you're not especially reflective, then it's easy to make absolute black and white claims that Clark's secret is never worth any degree of risk to anyone. But such a rule is completely fragile. Can you blurt out Clark's secret because there's a cat outside stuck in a hedge that would likely survive but might suffer if it fell? Is Clark's secret worth exposing to save someone who no one wants to save, like the sentient Steppenwolf who could have been rescued from his minions if anyone cared to do so? Some may say it's a clear call if your father is at stake or if a bus begins to sink, but it's hard to believe that they aren't arguing from hindsight bias with the seemingly certainty of death. Hypothetically, what if the bus accident were frightening, but more survivable than not? For the next four years, Clark would have suffered rumors and fears that he might reap more consequences from that day. And as we've discussed extensively before, what if it looked like Jonathan was going to deliver himself without issue until almost the last second? If Jonathan had left the car at the same time as Hank, he would have survived the event just like Hank did. There was only a 10 second difference between them exiting the vehicle. And then there was only 10 seconds from Jonathan refusing Clark's help to his disappearance. Less than a minute of decision making where Clark would doubt himself for the next 16 years. These are the dilemmas Clark 
Mark was saddled with as his own secret keeper. Imagine the imposition of this responsibility and dilemma on others. This illustrates a possible reason why Clark is more careful with his secret than in standard superhero fare. It shows why Clark's circle is small and why it's an imposition to place this secret on others. It may alleviate some of Clark's own burdens, maybe, but it significantly impacts the responsibilities of others. It practically makes the burden as heavy as Clark's since early on he wasn't exploiting his powers much at all. So the burden is almost entirely the secret without all the superhero shenanigans that Billy and Freddie enjoyed. It would take more to justify Clark putting that on someone, and it was unlikely with his transient lifestyle. And all of this assumes that Clark is conscientious, diligent, reflective, etc. Of course, you could imagine a free spirit who doesn't think through his actions or consequences and isn't burdened by them because the real consequences never come. But Clark Kent isn't Zack Morris. You could also imagine if Superman was manipulative and comfortable with dishonesty. Critics argue that it would have been so easy to manipulate the public perception, and they're not wrong. All Superman had to do was be willing to lie through his teeth. Get a PR consultant and pick up any script or symbol that he'd want to project out there. Pick a movement, position, or cause to use as camouflage. It isn't that hard. Nolan's Batman was a profoundly broken man, lacking critical self-awareness and insight. And yet he could create a powerful lie that transcended his own issues. Lying is child's play. Clark could have played the role of soldier, savior, or god, preacher, teacher, or celebrity. He could have acted as a weapon of last resort or a political tool for nations to wield. He could have even acted out the inspiration script or ordinary guy or self-help guru. He could play the role of naive boy scout. There's just one problem with all of that. It's dishonest. If Superman was going to do that, he might as well wear a mask to go along with the script. The script isn't who he was, didn't come from him, and didn't do what he was called to do. And using someone else's was just lying to himself and begging to come off the rails. In Shazam, Black Adam's story shows the downfall of a dishonest script. He gains power from the story of Champion, but discards it for the underlying truth of revenge. Superman refused to give them a dishonest script. They don't know how to honor him because they didn't know this story yet. Just wish it was more simple. My baby boy. Nothing was ever simple. Taking parents down from the pedestal can be difficult, depending on where you're starting from. For many, psychologically in a healthy home, we tend to start out with perfect worldviews, just worlds, perfect parents, perfect heroes, etc. Early on, we can't help but feel and act like we're immortal, even if intellectually we know different. Often subconsciously, we begin believing our parents are invincible, immortal, and infallible. After all, when your parents are alive, they have a 20 to 40 year head start on wisdom over you. As the source of order in your early life. They reflect the order and stability of the world and shape your way forward, especially when you're younger and your mortality is beyond your intuition. But the loss of a parent is often the initiation into understanding the disorder of this world. It is said that no one becomes a man until he's lost his father. And for our heroes, it serves as an opportunity to reflect on their own progress as people. As Bruce says, I'm older now than my father ever was. He was about five years older than when Thomas had died. He's had all that time to accumulate the same amount of wisdom, if not more. But is he wiser? What has he accomplished? And would Thomas be proud? 
Bruce avoids that reflection by brushing it aside in favor of seeking to serve a more distant and abstract legacy of hunting instead. Note that Bruce moves backwards into the family legacy, while Clark moved forwards away from family farming or Kryptonian determinism. So let's compare Clark along the same metric. In Man of Steel at the age of 33, Clark is 16 years away from when he had lost Jonathan at age 17, and he's 13 years away from the age 46, the age when Jonathan had passed. Clark is more than half the way to being the age at which Jonathan would be as wise as he ever was. Clark is already four years past the age of finding and raising himself. Would he have raised himself the same? Does he know anything different from Jonathan? Where was Jonathan at age 33? This was a key opportunity to assess, reflect, and change course if he wanted to be wiser. The events of Man of Steel are the culmination of that and why Martha is so proud of him at the end. He always believed you were meant for greater things, and that when the day came, your shoulders would be able to bear the weight. In a certain sense, Jonathan's way had its chance. Now Clark becomes Superman, forging his own path. When the trials of BVS come at age 35, Clark asks his mom, How come Dad never left Kansas? Oh, oh he just, uh, <laughs> you know how he was. What do I need to travel for? I'm already there. <laughs> Again, relying on the wisdom of his parents and using them as a measuring stick of his own progress. Did Jonathan see the need for Superman like he did in his travels? Martha says he would have said, I'm already there. There is wisdom in that idea. At the end of the hero's journey, after the cycle bids you to return, especially when there's a multi-generational farm which seems like an inevitable destination. C.S. Lewis once wrote, quote, The process of living seems to consist of coming to realize truths so ancient and simple that if stated, they sound like barren platitudes. They cannot sound otherwise to those who have not had the relevant experience. That is why there is no real teaching of such truths possible. End quote. This is the cycle, the journey, and how Superman goes from simple and pure to complex and complicated and back again. I believe that Jonathan earned his ability to answer, I'm already there. He follows the anti-metabole of Francis Bacon. If a man will begin with certainties, he shall end in doubts. But if he will be content to begin with doubts, he shall end in certainties. End quote. His conviction arose from questions, rather than being one who never questioned his convictions. Incidentally, that's another anti-metabole, the most famous probably being, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. <laughs> but getting back to it, as wise as Jonathan was, Clark's travels would have taken him further in some regards than Dad. Jonathan put a lot of stock in Clark finding the answers with his other father, but Jor-El's answers weren't the be-all, end-all answers to living a life on Earth. To what degree may he interfere with human freedom for their safety? How does he deal with unintended consequences that produce tragic results and loud criticism? Bruce acted like he had nothing to learn from the living Waynes. My parents taught me a different lesson. Dying in the gutter for no reason at all. Clark inquires of his past to apply to his present. Of course, the answer is that there are no answers. The exercise of virtue is in the particulars and through their practice, not pat easy answers always applicable, despite what we want or what we wish. Just wish it was more simple. My baby boy, nothing was ever simple. Nothing was ever simple.
That is the reply to the callous critic who claims everything could have been forecasted and foreseen predicted and prepared for, that Superman should have known that he would have been divisive and been prepared for such reception, that unintended consequences are obvious, and that that information alone ought resolve the issue. That's a silly misapprehension of humanity. Knowing and experiencing are obviously different things. The Kents knew Clark would face challenges once he was known to the world. That doesn't mean that their warnings and predictions meant that he could avoid the impact of the experience. Knowing what a healthy diet and activity level is differs from experiencing diet and exercise. Knowing that you will have to discipline your kids when you are frustrated and running out of patience is different than experiencing that. Knowing from books is different than doing. Watching a YouTube video is different than doing. Any real depiction of virtue is going to be accompanied by the difficulties of actual execution. Knowing that you should not care what others think is different than actually not caring, especially as principles begin to come into contact and tension. Knowing you should listen to others. Knowing you should respect others, knowing you should be empathetic, but then knowing you should not care what they think. You have to start making your principles more nuanced, apply them selectively or situationally, and to begin to develop a body of experience we call wisdom. You can't just execute on your idealized rationalizations. As it's been said, everyone goes into the ring with a plan until they get punched in the face. That's why resilience, iteration, and experience is more meaningful than all the could've, would've, should've critics can spray. Of course, this makes the pre-approved scripts, roles, and stereotypes seem much more secure things. If you just go with what society intended, you do not have to decide. Just follow the script to secure its outcome. But that's an anathema to Jor-El, to the death of Krypton, and a tension that Superman must forever balance. The preservation of the institutions which provide societal order, but also the expression of individual autonomy which provides freedom, unlike the Nietzschean Ubermensch who discovered institutions to forge his own morality wholesale. Superman is a figure who almost always finds himself in equipoise between authority and rebellion, support and dissent. Superman upholds the law but is himself a vigilante. Superman promotes truth and honesty but himself maintains a secret. He'll fight Lex any day but refuse to upend an election that results in a President Luther. BVS was in part Superman trying to navigate to what degree is he required to follow the script, obey institutions, support institutions, or subordinate himself to them. In The Dark Knight Returns, Superman is seen as a government stooge at the becking call of the president who commits moral injury against himself, betraying friends for the sake of patriotic obedience. Now that's an oversimplification, but it shows the outcome of Superman following a particular script, say of Patriot. It is obvious that Man of Steel is very much about the importance of having the choice to go off script, lest one end up like Krypton or Zod. Superman's search for self may annoy or outrage critics that won't be persuaded by such principles, so here's a quick aside. <laughs> Let me show you how Clark's actions were algorithmically optimal from a mathematical standpoint seeking to maximize success. When Jonathan advises Clark, he proposes no effective time limit, even if it takes the rest of your life. Well, I think it's obvious that Jonathan is speaking metaphorically to indicate the importance and priority of this question to Clark, but not a literal endorsement of Clark pursuing the unanswered without end and without accomplishment. At what point, however, is it reasonable to stop, or in other terms, optimal? 
When have you given your search the best opportunity to give you the best candidate without sacrificing too much to the search? (laughs) This question is near and dear to me because I first encountered it formally as the secretary problem in my computer science courses. Instead of seeking existential answers, purpose, calling, or career, the hypothetical was simply hiring the best secretarial candidate. But it's obvious how this applies to a variety of search spaces, buying a home, picking a restaurant, or even a spouse. These are generally called explore-exploit problems, or optimal stopping. They've come back recently due to a 2016 book, Algorithms to Live By, The Computer Science of Human Decision. Needless to say, I really like that book and recommend it for the underlying details. But if we skip past the mathematical proofs and go directly to the algorithm, an optimal search consists of 30% of the search space or the available search time, at which point you pick the next candidate better than those already evaluated. There's more nuance to it, of course, but this is the TED Talk version that author Tom Griffiths gives. Every time you walk into an open house, you get some information about what's out there and what's on the market. But every time you walk out, you're running the risk of the very best place passing you by. So how do you know when to switch from looking to being ready to make an offer? This is such a cruel and familiar problem that it might come as a surprise that it has a simple solution, 37%. If you want to maximize the probability that you find the very best place, you should look at 37% of what's on the market and then make an offer on the next place you see which is better than anything that you've seen so far. Or, if you're looking for a month, take 37% of that time, 11 days, to set a standard, and then you're ready to act. Since Clark can't possibly examine every permutation of profession by percentage, he'll have to bound his search by time. And if we want nice round numbers, Clark can assume he'll live to 100, meaning his search time should be 37 years. Well, that's roughly where we find ourselves in Superman's journey. He's evaluating everything he's experienced and on the precipice of making a commitment to the thing better than the rest. That's why he's at unrest in BVS and why Justice League seals the deal on being a superhero forever. Now, of course, a caveat to this, as Tom concludes, Knowing all of this has helped me to relax when I have to make decisions. You could take the 37% rule for finding a home as an example. There's no way that you can consider all of the options, so you have to take a chance. And even if you follow the optimal strategy, you're not guaranteed a perfect outcome. If you follow the 37% rule, the probability that you find the very best place is, funnily enough, 37%. You fail most of the time, but that's the best that you can do. Ultimately, computer science can help to make us more forgiving of our own limitations. You can't control outcomes, just processes. And as long as you've used the best process, you've done the best that you can. Sometimes those best processes involve taking a chance, not considering all of your options, or being willing to settle for a pretty good solution. These aren't the concessions that we make when we can't be rational. They're what being rational means. Thank you. One of the famous illustrations of this is Johannes Kepler using such an algorithm to evaluate 11 women to wed. But you'll find the story funnier if you dig it up yourself. One telling is in The Grapes of Math by Alex Bellos. But the point of all of this is that there exists a lens that allows for Clark's search and uncertainty and argues it is algorithmically ideal. That doesn't mean it needs to be our basis for accepting it, but suggests that having an open mind to a multitude of reasonable minds prevents you from declaring there is only one way it should or ought to be. The Kents were very careful not to indoctrinate Clark with absolutes, that early along his explore phase that he would approach things Socratically, thoughtfully, that one word, maybe. That is the essence of hope and of faith. 
I keep going back to this wonderful phrase that Anne Lamott came up with. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. If you're sure about something, then you don't need faith. And that's true in science as well as anything else. Isn't it ironic that the certainty some insist upon Superman should disqualify him as a beacon of hope? Just wish it was more simple. My baby boy. Nothing was ever simple. Superman could have adopted so many different roles if raised differently. Consider the comments of Dr. Brian O'Rourke, an economist, professor, and author of Why Doesn't Superman Take Over the World? (laughs) But before I play those clips and discuss, it's interesting that BVS was the initial inspiration for the book. My wife and I were watching television and a uh, trailer came on for Batman versus Superman. And she, having never read any of the comics, just didn't understand why Batman and Superman would fight. It seemed like a peculiar thing. These are the two biggest names in DC and what do they have to fight about? And I thought, you know what, that's a really good question. And as an economist, as a social scientist, I thought, there's probably an answer there. Let me sit down and see if I can come up with something. And when I came to an answer that I was satisfied with, I thought that, you know, there are probably a lot of other questions in the comic world that we we could answer from an economic perspective. And it's amazing how many of them we can answer with some economic rationale. Totally. So why do Superman and Batman want to fight each other? <laughs> so what I came up with is that it is a facet of something in economics we call game theory, where you have two individuals who are participating in an activity and they both have a particular strategy that dominates any other strategy. That strategy will lead them to a worse outcome if they instead would sit down kind of talk things out and cooperate, they could reach a better outcome for the two of them combined. But in the case of superheroes, whether you fight or whether you kind of sit down and talk it out, the dominant strategy becomes we should fight because if the other person doesn't fight, I can get my way. And if the other person is going to fight, well, I'm better off fighting as well. So the dominant strategy becomes to fight. And in essence, it becomes a prisoner's dilemma where the dilemma is the choice we make is going to put us in a worse position. And there's no incentive to move us from that worse position unless there's some outside enforcement mechanism to force us into the better outcome. One of the benefits of an economic lens is in examining things people take for granted. I'd like to talk to you about value, right? Because it's cool to have superpowers, but some of the things that superheroes have to go through to get those powers is a bit intimidating. Do those superpowers really have value? Is it worth it to have those powers, given what they have to go through to get them? There's a lot of superheroes that find that the opportunity costs of becoming a superhero are far higher than they expected them to be. For some of these people, it seems like you dream about being a superhero, but you don't realize what you have to give up to get to that point. Which is the absolute definition of opportunity cost, right? It's extremely easy to assume Superman's success and virtue, since we're all subject to hindsight bias. I don't have time to go on that tangent, but I'll leave a link in the show notes to a Choiceology episode on that topic. Regardless, economists ask questions about givens and assumptions, things taken for granted, like superheroes having day jobs and government accountability. Superpowers have obvious utility, right, to fight crime and avert disaster. But that all seems very reactive. I would like to know why superheroes aren't more proactive. Like, why doesn't Superman use his enormous strength to help build dams or bridges? And also, why doesn't he charge for that? 
let's address the charging part of it first. And Superman's a great example of this. Some of these characters who have to go out and get a job, you would think that one of the perks of being a superhero is you wouldn't have to go to work a nine to five job. But there's a lot of these characters who they go out and they get a job because of the type of service that they're providing. Essentially, they're providing public goods. And because they're providing those public goods, they can't charge for them. At least they can't charge effectively. Because think about, you know, an alien invasion is descending upon planet Earth and a superhero is trying to convince a mayor or convince the president of a country to pay them to stop the invasion. As the negotiations go on, the aliens take over and it doesn't matter what the end game is. The fact that a superhero is providing a public good makes it incredibly difficult for them to monetize those powers. So why isn't there some kind of solution to that? I mean, why, for example, wouldn't governments pay them like a stipend or something like that? Well, that's an interesting question. That's actually raised in in the first Marvel Civil War, where there is some question about, do the superheroes need to have some sense of accountability? So government's stepping in to try to assert itself and saying, you guys can't just be out there. It's not the Wild West. You can't just go out and do what you want. I mean, that's basically what government wants the superheroes to do. They want them to be employees of the federal government. And the question then gets raised, and it's kind of an institutional question of, okay, if they're paying our salary, then do they get to tell us what to do? Do they get to tell us who to save? Do we have to wait for their approval to go and protect someone or save someone? Because if we're waiting around for that approval, it could be too late by the time we get it. Right. And also then the superheroes are acting as a proxy for the government. And there's all sorts of issues with that, I would think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. O'Rourke uses 2006's Civil War, but he could have just as easily used a DC example published 20 years earlier. 1986's The Dark Knight Returns presents questions of what is Superman's duty to the government, to the president, to the nation, even if it may conflict with personal loyalties and former friendships. The Alternatives and Elseworlds help us probe, challenge, question, and outline what justice looks like, what society should be. The trigger for this idea came after reading an Elseworlds novel, Superman Red Sun, where Superman lands in a Ukrainian farm collective and becomes essentially a devotee of Stalin. And as he progresses through the system, he decides that, well, I'm going to follow the institutions that I have been brought up in, and I'm just basically going to take over the world. So we can look at Superman as essentially being a company man. He adheres to the rules that are set before him. You know, if he lands in Kansas, which it's good that he he did. He becomes this fighter for truth and democracy. And if he lands in Russia, he becomes this fighter for the perpetuation of the Warsaw Pact. So Superman is this force for the institutions in wherever he lands. And that can be really good for the world in that he doesn't interfere with your life too much. Now, there's this freedom that's allowed, but he's going to protect the freedoms of people generally. Or if he lands somewhere and the institutions are bad, he will advance those institutions instead. And that can be devastating for the world. There are certainly parts of the DC world and the Marvel world where you have these kind of parallel universes where the superheroes, all of them end up being bad. So they all sort of become this dictatorial body that take over the world. And back to the idea of institutions, there is some sense of order when you live in a dictatorship. And that's sort of how Superman gets going. He's like, I want there to be order. I don't, you know, I don't want these villains to get away with things. So you have this order, but you also have this incredible lack of freedom that accompanies that order. So the question that the authors of of these parallel stories, of these parallel universe types of stories, leave the reader with is, okay, this is what could happen, and there will be order, but is it the kind of order that you want to live with? To O'Rourke, this is partly an explanation for Superman's virtuous relative inaction. 
So let's just get to the question your book poses. Superheroes are way more powerful than mere human mortals, right? And Superman is particularly powerful. So why doesn't he just say, why not? Why doesn't Superman just take over the world? I think Superman doesn't take over the world because Superman at his core has been raised by someone who has taught him to appreciate where he lives and to appreciate the institutions that govern society as a whole. Superman is protecting three of the most important institutions. And so he's trying to battle corruption. He's trying to protect private property, and he's trying to uphold the rule of law. If you have those three things in any society, it's going to lay the groundwork for economic vitality and economic success. And Superman's been raised to believe in these things. So even though he could take over the world, he has decided that the institutions that are in place that govern economic behavior and that govern political behavior are the things that he needs to protect. And if he can protect those things, then the rest of the world will be, if not great, it'll be good enough. So he doesn't take over the world because if he does his job right, he doesn't need to. Exactly. Because he's protecting the institutions that do the hard work for him. Think about the incredible temptation to do otherwise or the influence of others to require otherwise from him. We suggested some of that in the Secret Keeper segment earlier. In these DC films, we've shown how having humble doubts and uncertainty at first is the realistic route to these conclusions and convictions. It shows the depth and value of realism compared to enabling escapist fantasy. So the things that I have found in reading comics is that the storylines have to have some bit of reality to them. They have to be an anchor to keep the readers interested. And if you start to let the boat drift a little too far from reality, people aren't interested in the stories as much. So they need that anchor. And it almost seems like the economic motivation for behavior, the incentives that are in front of people that as economists, we understand that this is going to change your behavior. Those incentives and motivations are all anchored and connected through economics. So these underlying stories, the backstories, the personal stories, the personal lives of the superheroes, we can't disassociate that stuff too far from reality because of the powers, because of the flying and the running and the super strength. Those are the places where reality is sort of abandoned. But the stories themselves have to have something that hold them together. And I think it's economic. So when it comes to Superman, then you've got in the abstracts, one of the most recognizable claims in comics is that Superman fights for truth, justice and the American way. In economics, the American way, along with truth and justice, are part of what we refer to as economic institutions. Without institutions, social order becomes chaotic. Was this the basis for novel? Yeah, absolutely. It was something I'd been teaching in class for a while. We talk about institutions and how institutions are important to facilitate economic growth. You see in countries that don't have good institutions like a sound judicial system that are willing to allow corruption to go unchecked, who don't protect property rights. We see those countries don't have much hope in terms of economic growth. When Superman was created, the creators didn't think of these things as economic institutions, but they clearly are. You need a sound judicial system. You need an unbiased enforcement mechanism. You need the protection of private property. You need to eliminate corruption. If you can do those things, you're going to set yourself on some firm footing to moving towards a much better outcome for your country economically, but also, and more importantly, for the citizens who live in that country. And that's what Superman is really doing. However, I will say that many criticize economists for saying that everything is economics. You can't teach everybody everything. Fair enough. But if there's one group of people in the world who think they can learn just about anything, it's economists. This is a long-standing complaint among other academics and scientists and assorted smart people. The field of economics does carry an air of triumphalism. 
many economists feel they can contribute insights to areas that lay well outside their own expertise. Areas like education, criminology, medicine. There's also a lot about, really about decision theory and about how do you structure a decision in a way that helps you make a good choice. And that's really economics. Developmental psychology and obstetrics and pediatrics are not sciences of decision making. And so I think especially around the issues where you've got to think about what's the best for your family, you need someone doing decision science. There's something to be said for this. Economists have analytical tools that are useful on many topics. They're really good at working with very large data sets. And there can be a big upside in having an outsider's perspective on hard problems. But economists' triumphalism, or maybe you'd call it colonialism, it also has its downsides. I can't even tell how many tangents deep I am at this point. This is getting edited out. Oh, man, we've talked a lot about decision making throughout this show and different ways of doing it. The reasonable person standard, utilitarianism, consequentialism, virtue ethics, deontology, logic and foreseeability, emotion and persuasion, heat of the moment provocation and systematic mistakes. We've especially looked at behavioral economics, especially how they differ from the way strictly rational actors would behave based on cognitive biases, heuristics, and the like. And for me, the single biggest takeaway from all these different lenses is to have humility in making and judging decisions. As insistent as some may be as to the absolute optimal course of action, the incontrovertible choice and outcome, those diamond absolutes, it isn't too hard to show how a reasonable mind may differ, under a different lens, a point of view, perspective, or position. And the degree to which one's power can override, oppress, supplant, or affect others should warrant a degree of skepticism towards one's own affirmative policies. Barring an alien invasion or global catastrophe, if Superman does nothing, the world still spins as it always has. To actively impinge upon that functional stability, Superman has to consider the impact of his actions beyond the immediate, sympathetic, press-friendly, or rhetorically easy. Prior to the debut of the Justice League, his every public action carried with it global implications of an unaccountable being capable of imposing that action henceforth anywhere or anytime without restraints. just wish it was more simple. My baby boy. Nothing was ever simple. People hate what they don't understand. But they see what you do, and they know who you are. You're not a killer. A threat. I never wanted this world to have you. Be their hero, Clark. Be their monument, be their angel. Be anything they need you to be. Or be none of it. You don't owe this world a thing. You never did. I want to dive a little into Martha's dialogue here because we may be able to add or address three common interpretations of it. Like so much of the film, clarity is not the priority and spoon feeding is shunned. Accordingly, it's open to some interpretation and let's look at three that are popular but not necessarily supported. In some, people will say that Martha is telling Clark one, not to be a hero, or two, to protect himself, or three, be selfish. That first one is a misreading of the scene in order to denigrate the Kansas parents. It's the same mode of interpretation that turns Jonathan's maybe into a should, only even more egregious because Martha literally says, be their hero, Clark, and that's read as don't be their hero. 
as with the other scene, we can extend out its logic to check if it's a consistent reading. To review, if Jonathan had meant that Clark should have let those kids die, that meant that the dangers, risks, and costs of letting them live was too high. And given that Clark did not let those kids die, that meant that those dangers, risks, and costs would now accrue. If Jonathan had meant should, then they would not be sitting around discussing the aftermath. They would have packed up their things and disappeared in the night. Jonathan said and meant maybe because of the uncertainty, doubt, and questions. He never said should with the certainty or conviction that we've challenged this entire episode. Despite what detractors declare, there was never a callous call just to let them die. Instead, we see a 42-year-old figuring out how to convey the magnitude of Clark's actions to his 13-year-old son. There's more at stake here than just our lives, Clark, or the lives of those around us. Likewise, what are the logical actions or natural consequences of that interpretation if actually true beyond the borders of this conversation? Instead of imposing this isolated insistence as an attack, what are the effects that ripple out from this position if Martha actually held it? Most people don't restrict their convictions to a single conversation. If they actually mean or believe something, it impacts other things. So if Martha didn't want Clark to be a hero, she could simply state it in the affirmative. Don't be a hero, Clark. If Martha didn't want Clark to be a hero, she wouldn't have celebrated his intention to become a reporter to keep his ear to the ground for those in need. If Martha didn't want Clark to be a hero, she would have indicated it as the source of his suffering. If Martha didn't want Clark to be a hero, she might bear a negative attitude towards any others in capes. And we can see how many of these overlap with the interpretation of simply seeking to protect Clark. If all she wanted to do was shield him from harm, prejudice, or challenge to totally protect him from the world, we would have seen dramatically different behavior in Man of Steel. Martha would not share the expectation that the whole world would one day see the beautiful truth. Martha would voice her opposition to Clark's surrender or assistance in fighting Zod. Martha would not support Clark keeping his ear to the ground or say that his shoulders could bear the weight. Martha would not put her position in a puzzle but simply say, don't go to Congress, Clark. She would not list all the positive things he might be to the world and simply deny that destiny. The final interpretation uses the word selfish as a term of art, but rather than torture it into a tautology, does anything actually support this? Superman defies his nature and heeds his nurture. He refuses the call of Krypton. It had its chance. The Superman walks between worlds, which is how he eats his cake and has it too. That's the duality of man and Superman, Clark Kent and Kal-El, who embraces paradox wholly. He keeps the paradoxical commandments and engages in the never-ending battle. He's the last son and the firstborn. He's the traditional man of tomorrow. He's the vigilante paragon. He's the ultimate immigrant and yet the native son. He's the urbanite and the farmer. He's the most humble god, the most human alien. He is not, nor ever was, an end unto himself. As early as his first introduction in Action Comics number 1, the first panel to feature the costumed Superman is so captioned. Superman, champion of the oppressed, the physical marvel who has sworn to devote his existence to helping those in need. There's no need to twist or torture these terms to make out their meaning. From the very first panel, he exists for the sake of others. The oppressed, 
the needy. He sacrifices himself to this by the terms of the caption. It is sworn, it is devotion, it is his existence. A duty beyond self-interest and layered with tradition, institutions, religion, and values. No one looked at Superman as out to destroy every edifice of contemporary American way of life. Instead, Superman had appended the American way to his slogan as early as 1942 to show his allegiance. Of course, with our cinematic Superman, the saying stitched into his suit by the filmmakers is a quotation from Joseph Campbell, another expression of Superman's paradoxical nature. And where we had thought to be alone, we shall be with all the world. Where we had thought to be alone, we shall be with all the world. A hallmark of his influence on this Superman, and the inspiration behind the mythological cues, the journey of discovery, and the conception of the hero in these films. On that latter point, Joseph Campbell says, a hero properly is someone who has given his life to something bigger than himself or other than himself. The terms are express, bigger than himself and other than himself, literally the opposite of being an end to himself. Campbell, off-quoted as saying, follow your bliss, came to regret the hedonistic assumption implied and later wished that he had said, follow your blisters, to indicate worthy pursuits that involve suffering and sacrifice. Anyone examining his journey cycle understands that it is mostly the death and surrender of self, not an assertion of rights and entitlements against the adventure. This sacrificial Superman says, take my liberty for their sake as he surrenders and subordinates himself to humanity to be turned over to Zod. From the beginning, Cal is told he does not exist for his own sake. He carries with him hopes and dreams. He represents principle and passion. He is a symbol and a sign before he is just a baby. And even as a child, Clark is told he does not exist for his own sake. He is the answer to existential questions. He bears responsibility for the whole world and is told he must consider those far beyond, even before the interests of those immediately around him or even himself. Jonathan makes good on this lesson by giving his own life to it. Never is Clark told to pursue his own self-interest and happiness first. Barely does Clark ever consider that first. The Kents sooner see Clark wrestle with his questions than exploit his gifts for production or capital. At no point do they express discontent either with his minimal life or his urban conversion. And finally, Clark is a grown-up who knows that men of power obey neither policy nor principle. His primary adversaries, Lex and Bruce, these princes of industry, crown jewels of capitalism, known for their wealth and power, intellect and deduction, bear the ring of Gyges to the ruination of their souls, while Clark reads Plato as espousing justice as a duty to it. If Clark is meant to further a selfish philosophy, then he's a pretty poor fountainhead. I mean figurehead. At best, there's a thread of individuality expressed, but that's a virtue and value found far and wide across the philosophical spectrum. For example, the existential individual against collective scripts. That seems to be a closer fit to what Martha is saying. So what is she saying? I think... An interpretation with more support is that Clark must carefully consider his motives and desires before acting, not simply following scripts out of thoughtless expectation or obligation. We've rambled on far from our theme of mothers, but you can imagine a woman feeling that it is the societal script that she be a mother, that she behave along certain expectations and stereotypes, and doing this with little reflection or analysis. This is what the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard called being lost to the finite. Well, if 
the script is sufficiently robust and if the times aren't especially trying, if one's power and influence are limited, and if nothing is tested beyond its breaking point, then such scripts may be mostly harmless error. As problematic as it may be to the dignity of that one person, it may just be a drop in the bucket compared to great swaths of humanity going about their business in a semi-autonomous state. Yet, Superman's power, influence, and impact magnify the gravity of givens and assumptions embedded into adopted scripts. We see this illustrated in our Elseworlds, where Superman may find himself a patriot, a nationalist, a Quaker, or a billionaire heir. Martha is not saying it is inherently wrong to be a hero, monument, or angel, but highlighting that any script he adopts, that any need he decides to fill, may bring with it additional expectations, which he has not agreed to, accepted, understood, or evaluated. She does not want him to act out of debt or obligation, thoughtlessly, out of what is owed the script. If Martha was counseling a daughter, she might say, Do not just become a wife because you are a woman. Do not just become a mother because you are a wife. Do not just do everything for your kids because you are a mother. It is her free will choice to be any of those things, but don't get swept up in meeting an expectation based only on a script. This seems to be what is highlighted by Martha saying, I never wanted this world to have you. What does she mean? Think about what it means with something of smaller scope. Instead of the world, make it a nation. The Superman exists and he is American. Instead of a nation, make it the military or the commander-in-chief. The script expects patriotic duty, expects one to take sides with their tribe against the other, expects obedience, etc. It's unclear what the world script for the superhero will be, but at least for Superman, it seems dangerously close to the expectations placed upon divinity. That's the only excuse that explains the depths of anger Lex and Bruce feel against Superman. That to them, he isn't simply just a guy trying to do the right thing, but an omnipotent god who has fallen short of absolute benevolence. You can see how the scripts and unspoken expectations can quickly run away from you and get out of hand. This seems to be what Martha is cautioning against. The world isn't owed his fealty, his rescue, his image, or his appearance. Not on rails alone. However, he cannot operate without obligations and expectations. Consider, to have and to hold is to agree to a covenant embracing those obligations and expectations. The basic vow, from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. The free will entry into the covenant illustrates what Martha is saying. Imagine again her counseling a daughter. Be his girlfriend, be his wife, be the mother of his children, or be none of it. You don't owe him that, you never did. No one should enter such a covenant on autopilot, just following expectations. It's obvious the disasters that can happen if you do. When you adopt obligations unconsciously, you can come to resent the obligations or commit moral injury against what your free will might have done otherwise. You kill on orders to your country. You agree to not have kids despite truly wanting children. You cut corners on health care to serve the cost and liability concerns of your hospital. Martha can see that the Superman is headed down the same path. Is Clark going to Congress of his own accord, out of free will, to create a covenant? Or have his critics penned in his actions so that he thinks this is what he has to do, what the world is owed? Martha doesn't give Clark the answer. She can't, no more than a mother tells her daughter she must marry. As Joseph Campbell says, of your destiny, no one can tell you what it is going to be. 
you have to learn to recognize your own depths. This understanding is what makes Superman's decision to go to Congress so profound. Why Superman's sacrifice is punctuated by saying, this is my world, and why the entire thing is tied to Lois, engagement, and marriage. Superman is not entering into his relationship with the world lightly. It is something chosen with clear eyes and free will, accepting the superhero script as one would with marriage. The revulsion and recoil people feel to Martha's line, you don't owe this world a thing, you never did, is because we've been with Superman so long that we've taken for granted the gravity of entering into that expectation. We're so used to the covenant that we take it for granted that Superman will always be around, always rescue, always provide hope, all at his expense and for our sake. We get upset at the debt being cancelled, like the revulsion we feel towards a mother who abandons her children. To us, Superman does owe us, because that's the expectation, that's the script. But this Superman didn't have to. The film reminds us that whatever the symbol or the script, there's still a human behind it, a person who has to make a choice to bear a cross, to agree to a relationship. And like with a marriage, that commitment creates order, understanding, trust, and security. Much of the behavior is the same before and after, but there's meaning in the covenant, in the agreement, in the ceremony that turns the corner. It is out of that that humanity comes to understand and trust the superhero. Even if it acted entitled to it before, the world subconsciously understood it didn't quote-unquote have the Superman, and that the Superman didn't owe it a thing. Must there be a Superman? They asked the question because it could evaporate at any moment without his commitment. That insecurity and uncertainty is what created the post-puppy love petulance after infatuation ended. The world realigns when Superman's sacrifice amounts to putting a ring on it. There is value in symbols, in institutions, in tradition, to convey the weight that transcends mere facts. It's why Superman is the man of tomorrow, but simultaneously an establishment figure who defends the status quo. You can't discard the past because it is the foundation of the future. You can't reach tomorrow without yesterday. There is a reason that the journey is a circle. I'm already there. To close this out, consider Kierkegaard. As fans of philosophy, rather than historians of philosophy or people that have to attach their identity to these people's thinking, for us, the value of a philosophical concept really just lies in the idea itself, right? What I mean is we don't need to necessarily understand the complex inner workings to get value out of an interpretation. I mean, as long as that interpretation produces some novel string of thought and gets us to think about possible assumptions we have in our thinking, then it's really done its job for us. Now, to understand where Kierkegaard's coming from here, probably helpful to understand the world that he was living in. Kierkegaard's born in 1813. That puts him coming of age smack dab in the middle of the inception of this age of mass communication. You know, the telegrams invented in the 1840s, telephone invented mid-1800s. For the first time, the railroads of the industrial age are able to quickly and efficiently deliver daily newspapers, periodicals to everyone. Really interesting. Kierkegaard thought that it was very likely in the near future for a world to emerge where most people weren't individuals anymore acting on their individuality, but sort of faceless drones and a sea of spectators. 
he thought eventually there'd be more people spectating and living vicariously through other people that were actually doing stuff than there would be individuals doing stuff in that world. Well, to Kierkegaard, these spectators have lost a piece of what makes them their self. And because of this, they aren't the embodiment of a true individual to him. Sounds kind of harsh, but it's actually funny. If you went up to each and every one of these people in the crowd and, and you asked them, do you think you're an individual? They would unequivocally say yes. So what went wrong? Why does Kierkegaard not give them this title? Why would he say that they're not being as individual as they could be? Well, he talks a lot about this stuff, but let's talk about two primary pitfalls that he thinks people typically are at the mercy of that makes them less of an individual, that makes them lose that piece of their self, right? He says that oftentimes one thing that people do is they lose their self in the infinite. What does he mean by this? To lose yourself in the infinite is to be in a state of sort of analysis paralysis. You know, he has a famous quote, anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. We live in a world where we seemingly have an infinite number of possibilities at our fingertips. And whenever we find ourselves at one of these decision points, oftentimes we become overwhelmed by the sheer number of possible choices. And a tactic that a lot of people use to mitigate that sense of overwhelm is just to not make the decision. They just kind of sit there at that decision point, weighing their options forever and never actually taking action. Now, if Kierkegaard could see this, he'd be like, what are you doing? This is not an individual. This is somebody that thinks they're an individual lost in the infinite. Honestly, you could sit around and have this exact same conversation with yourself for the rest of your life. When are you going to make a decision and act on it? One day, you're actually going to consider the possibilities and make the best decision you can at that time. You're just prolonging that process. And as long as you're in this state of limbo, as long as you're not acting on what you think the best decision is. You may possess the ability to freely act on your behalf. You may truly be autonomous. But if you never use it, if you never use that ability to freely act, you know, you just get lost in the infinite thinking about an endless sea of possibilities. You effectively are not capable of freely acting. You're paralyzed. You lose a piece of yourself in the infinite. By the way, this goes for every choice we make. What job to have, what person to marry, what diet to choose. It's easy to find ourselves lost in the infinite. Okay. Now, the other side of that to Kierkegaard, the other common pitfall that people are at the mercy of, is called being lost in the finite. So as you can imagine, it's kind of the other side of the coin here. Being lost in the finite is not considering enough possibilities and succumbing to the allure of just mindlessly going along with social conventions or culture or expectations of you, etc. This one's a particularly scary one because most people that are losing a piece of themselves in the finite are less equipped to realize that they're doing it than the people losing themselves in the infinite. See, to these people, they see everything they're doing as their own choice. By the way, listening to this, you may find yourself being more prone to one of these than another, but make no mistake, these pitfalls are not mutually exclusive things. See, to Kierkegaard, you could be losing a piece of yourself in both of them at the same time. And on that same note, I guess, in two extreme versions of both of them in the very same lifetime. The only way to stop thinking about the endless sea of possibilities and actually make a decision is to do what Kierkegaard sees as the most pure act of reason that you can ever make. And that is to make a leap of faith. You know, in a climate where there's often this dichotomy created between faith and reason, and philosophers all throughout the Middle Ages are trying to find some way to make the two work together, here's Kierkegaard saying that making a leap of faith is actually the most reasonable thing you could ever do. Because instead of being at the mercy of whatever limited evidence you have, or being limited by whatever advice you could conjure up, when you make a leap of faith, you choose the person that you're going to be rather than the world choosing for you. And when you make that choice, you can actually act on it and be an individual. What Kierkegaard's saying here is, 
is actually far more interesting than that. First off, yes, Kierkegaard is a Christian, and yes, this is his justification for why you should take a leap of faith towards Christianity. But here's the other thing. If you looked at Kierkegaard, and then you compared him to every other Christian that you had ever met in your life, he would be a totally different creature than all those other people. Not only would he be different, he'd probably be disgusted with how lazily and selfishly every Christian you've ever met in your life practices their religion. Kierkegaard's task in a lot of his earlier work is to find out what it means to truly be a good Christian. You know, he compared himself as a wild goose that was teaching all these domesticated geese how to fly again. He goes on at length about practically every aspect of Christianity and how it's been distorted and mangled and in desperate attempt to try to make it easier and more attractive for people to join and then, you know, not have to try very hard once they call themselves a Christian. For example, listen to him here, quote, but the truth is that in a herd, we are free from the standard of the individual. So millions of men live and die. They're just numbers and the numerical becomes their horizon. That is to say, they're just copies. And Christianity, which in the divine love wants everyone to be an individual, has been transformed by human bungling into precisely the opposite. End quote. Really interesting the way he puts it there. When you're lost in the finite and you become a member of this herd, it's very alluring to you because it frees you from the standard of the individual. And millions and millions of people have been born and they find themselves in this place of being lost in the finite and they never question it and they live and die. But they live and die not as individuals that have lived and died, but basically as just numbers, copies. You know, most people in today's world, it's not like they have a problem with religion in general. What they have a problem with is all of the unfounded claims that they think it's making about the nature of existence. But Kierkegaard's sort of the opposite. He always said he's not concerned with the what of religion, but the how of religion. What Kierkegaard sees is that the only way religion can exist is if it has some sort of human being that it's being delivered to. The Bible isn't an encyclopedia to Kierkegaard. Why do people think of it that way? Human beings are an inexorable part of religion. The Bible is just a system, a system for bringing about the highest form of us as an individual. The values ascribed throughout the books are the best method to him at getting us to be our true individual self. So in that sense, religion is not the opiate of the masses, as Marx would say. The function of religion is to organize a commitment to a particular way of life. So to divorce the philosophical point from any baggage that one may have with religion, West proposes a thought experiment where you are paid a fortune to write down the end-all, be-all recipe for success. He then characterizes your written ideal as a sort of personal religion. What you have is the ultimate cheat sheet to following your own advice. And isn't that most people's problem? They know they should be doing something. They just can't find the motivation or the wherewithal to actually do it every day. Most people know what to do. And if somebody asks them for their advice, they could give them a much better way of doing the things that they do in practice. So when Kierkegaard says the value of religion is that it's a commitment to a particular way of life, to do this set of behaviors religiously, replace the Christianity of Kierkegaard with your own personal religion that you just made, and you can start to see the value of religion in Kierkegaard's eyes by taking a leap of faith that this is the best set of behaviors you can hold yourself to, which it obviously isn't, right? You'll go on to read more books, you'll do better experiments, you'll learn more about yourself and life, and you'll make adjustments. But by taking that leap of faith in that moment and committing yourself to action on this religion of yours, you'll avoid the whole process of losing a piece of yourself, either in the finite or the infinite, and you'll be truly living the best life you can possibly be living. This is why Kierkegaard sees faith as the ultimate act of reason, because you can choose the type of person you're going to be, as opposed to possibly being rendered paralyzed by that reasoning process. Existential individualism is reflected in the gravity this Superman gives to becoming Superman and the commitment that he is willing to die for. 
See, to Kierkegaard, most people living today, probably the upwards of 90% of the people that are alive at any given time, are not actually being true to their selves, like we talked about last time. A lot of people are lost. A lot of people find themselves either lost in the finite, you know, conferring their identity onto social conventions or whatever culture happened to fall into their lap when they were born, or lost in the infinite, stuck in a state of analysis paralysis about the truly infinite possibilities that they can choose from, but they never really act on one of them. Truly being a self requires you to have the realization that, yeah, there are an infinite number of things that I can do, but it also requires you to actually make a choice and act on one of those that corresponds with who you truly are. Kierkegaard has a great quote that's always stuck with me over the years. He says, quote, most men are subjective towards themselves and objective towards all others, fightfully objective sometimes. But the task is precisely to be objective towards oneself and subjective towards all others, end quote. The problem is with being sufficiently self-aware and honest enough with yourself to realize what exact type of despair you've gotten yourself locked into in an attempt to avoid that state of dizziness of anxiety and dread. You know, it's so easy to outsource your understanding of a particular subject to a book, and then whenever it comes up in conversation, just parrot lines out of that book. Pretend like you're an expert. It's so easy to outsource your morality to a pastor or your diet to a diet guru on some website. What Kierkegaard's saying here is that it's a really alluring concept to even outsource who we are as individuals, our our values, our priorities, everything that makes you, you. But if we're outsourcing it to things like swimming or hiking or ping pong, that's not necessarily you, right? You could just be using those things to run from the process, running from that discomfort of the state of despair. To be a true self requires you to be honest and contend with the anxiety and emptiness inside of you, not run from it. It's actually kind of funny. A lot of us spend tons of energy trying to never have to deal with this anxiety that comes along with becoming a true self. When in reality, at least a Kierkegaard, feeling intense anxiety, that means that you're on the right track towards becoming a self. We've run away from this anxiety the whole time. But Kierkegaard thinks we should embrace it. It's a necessary part of being a human being. Ironically, as as negative of a connotation as anxiety typically has associated with it, the more intense anxiety you feel about making this choice the closer you probably are to arriving at your true self. Instead of just outsourcing yourself to some culture you can't control or some person you can't control or whatever you're doing, embrace your freedom. Kierkegaard sees this process of becoming an individual as sort of a baptism by fire. Yes, you will experience anxiety. And yes, you will experience dread and all of these temporary feelings. But just like the discomfort you feel when you're lifting weights at the gym, that adversity is a catalyst for growth. And to Kierkegaard, it's the most important thing you could ever do in your life. Look, I know this is not a revolutionary concept to you guys or anything, but that's how I've always viewed going out for a run or lifting weights at the gym. You know, it's directly analogous to life itself. The same way that you're met with resistance and and you don't want to do it and you feel like quitting, but you push through it in the gym. Well, life throws you resistance. Life throws you things that you don't want to do. And I think because of that training, you're much less likely to quit when you're faced with adversity in life. I would implore you not to undersell how difficult this is. In fact, Kierkegaard writes extensively about how difficult it was for him to become an individual, even after he understood the process perfectly of becoming one. Quote, what I really lack is to be clear in my mind what I am to do, not what I must know. What matters is to find a purpose, to find a truth that is true for me, to find the idea for which I am willing to live and die. That is what my soul thirsts for as the African desert thirsts for water. 
end quote. Kierkegaard's trying to make the case here that the choices we make are free choices and that we need to remain vigilant in keeping an inventory of ourselves because these choices are our responsibility, not some manifestation of something out of our control. This would be the first shot fired towards a target that would eventually be called existentialism. Clark is literally told it will be a leap of faith. Sometimes you have to take a leap of faith first. The trust part comes later. Just wish it was more simple. My baby boy. Nothing was ever simple. <laughs> I think it's obvious why these clips were cut out of the Mother's Day episode. <laughs> that wasn't especially brief or easy to put together, but I didn't want to let all those recordings go into the vault where they never seem to make their way back out again. Even so, I still kept out many additional ramblings. For example, I took out my admiration for the Flash family legacy as an example of a surpassing mentor. I took out my commentary on the relative absence of grandparents in superhero stories and then talk about other adult milestones for our iconic heroes. I rambled on too long about all the moms we didn't mention. Um, I had an Elseworlds observation regarding Brightburn and Steelheart and many, many more less coherent digressions. So day to day, I just don't have time to be doing these, but I'm thankful for when I get to. So here are some clips I'm going to leave with you. Um, there's some philosophical commentary on superheroes. There's a clear example of the conjunction fallacy. There's a clip on success sourced from repetition. And uh, keep our earlier C.S. Lewis quote in mind. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You're the answer, son. And as you said, that insistence that this is all for a greater good tends to blur the lines between good and evil in characters that we have previously placed on one side of that divide. And you named Loki and, and Nebula. Those are great examples. What does that tell us and the fan reaction to characters like this about the way we prize that moral ambiguity, that finding good in the bad or finding bad in the good? Yeah, I think that superhero stories uh, on cinema have given us an opportunity to recognize that heroism does not come in the sense of you're always righteous and perfect and making the right choice. It's an invitation for us to look inward and realize, look, a lot of this is gray. People that we care about who are aiming at the good sometimes fail. I feel like this is uh, empowering in its own way because it's telling us you don't have to have it all figured out. A lot of the world doesn't come in black and white, but that doesn't mean you should stop aiming at doing good things. And even our heroes are not perfect and do fail and have disagreements, and they're still trying to bring about good in the world. And even our villains, there's something to what they're saying, even though they've clearly gone around the bend. One thing it invites us to do is to not assume that we have figured out who the good people are and the bad people are based on the initial framing of things. Not everything is what it seems. And maybe you should get to know the supposed enemy a little bit more before passing judgments about them. It's just, it's more complicated. And I think that that's an important lesson. I think 
Marvel sort of takes it for granted that there are these existential threats to humanity and is looking more at how individuals who have the capacity to do something should conduct themselves in you know, attending to this. So there's some overlap there. But I don't see there to be tremendous tension in the Marvel universe with, with what DC's looking at as you know, their relationship with the people. But we don't get that. We get a Superman and Man of Steel who's like, I don't know if I should reveal my powers. His dad in that movie, quite remarkably to many people, has this conversation with his son when his son saves the bus of kids being like, yeah, I, I don't know if that was the right time to do it. And young Clark Kent's like, but I can save them. said, I don't know if you should save them or not. Wonder Woman at some point realizes it's not Ares that's causing humanity to fight each other. It's humanity causing humanity to fight each other. And she asks out loud, you know, are you people worth saving? Like, is there anything here worth doing? And so there's this really complicated relationship I see in the DC universe, at least in, in those examples I've given, between the heroes and the people that they're trying to be heroic for. I don't see nearly as much as that in Marvel. And so I think that there's a richness there in the DC movies. Superhero stories in general, this is a theme that I've often talked about, have a good side and a bad side. The good side is they often give us stories about individuals being empowered and trying to do good. And they sort of inspire us to do that. The bad side is that they sometimes create the impression that if you're just a good person, you will do good things. And we know that that's not true. In a lot of the movies that we're looking at, this theme of, well, what happens if someone with power who's not good gets in control comes again and again? Would we trust Captain America with the Infinity Gauntlet? I bet you a lot of people would be like, yes. Should you? I don't know. It can ruin people. That theme resonates very much with our political moment. Just because you have power doesn't mean, one, that you're good. And even if you are good, having a lot of power means that you might use it in untoward ways. And so I see us trying to work this out in our super superhero stories. You're the answer, son. Let me demonstrate this tendency from a different angle. We gave the following description to several people. Okay, so I'm going to describe someone, and I want you to tell me what this person likely does for a living. William is a fan of the opera. He enjoys going to art museums when he goes on vacation, and he enjoys playing chess with his friends. So which is more likely? A, William is a professional violinist for a major symphony orchestra, or B, William is a farmer. (laughs) I'm going to go with the obvious one, that he's a violinist. Uh, William's probably a professional violinist. Uh, Okay, I'm going to go with the violinist. Seems the obvious choice, I know, but hey. A. And why do you think A? I think that those hobbies would all be more commonly enjoyed by people who are professional musicians. Most of the people we spoke to chose the first option, that William was a violinist, because the description matches the stereotype we hold about classical musicians. But in reality, the likelihood of William being a farmer is far higher, because farmers make up much larger proportions of the population than professional violinists in major symphony orchestras. This error is called base rate neglect, and it's due to something called the representativeness heuristic. Basically, it's a mental shortcut or rule of thumb to help you categorize things in a complex world. A stereotype is a prime example of the representativeness heuristic. Here's another example of the power of stereotypes. So uh, Amy is 29 years old. She's single, she's outspoken, she's very bright. When she was a student, she majored in English literature and she was deeply interested in the theater. So which is more probable? That Amy is A, a bank teller, or B, Amy is a bank teller and she writes an arts review for her local newspaper. What do you think? Yeah, I'm gonna go with B. I guess B. B, she's a bank teller and writes an arts review. 
Uh, let's say the second one. I hope she's, you know, pursuing writing if that's what she's studied, right? Again, almost everyone we spoke to figured the second description was more likely, even though whenever you add another category, in this case, the category of newspaper columnist, the likelihood of someone belonging to both categories is always less than belonging to just one. This example is actually quite famous, though the woman in the original story was named Linda, not Amy. It was used by Amos Tversky and economics Nobel laureate Danny Kahneman in a study they ran about 40 years ago to illustrate what they called the conjunction fallacy. In short, even when adding more features to an outcome makes it less probable, if those details match our stereotypes, we tend to falsely infer that the outcome's probability has increased. We rely heavily on stereotyping as a shortcut. And while shortcuts can come in handy, they can also lead us to make some major logical and ethical mistakes. You're the answer, son. So here's another example. Sure, you can hit the gym really hard one day, like the best, heaviest workout of your life, just straight barbaric. And afterwards, you do everything right. You have a giant protein-rich meal and a long, restful night's sleep. But unfortunately, even after all that, you won't see any results. Visually, you'll be just as big as you were before you went. In fact, if you were to skip the gym that day altogether, in the grand scheme of things, it wouldn't really make a difference. If you asked a friend how you looked before and after your workout, assuming there was no such thing as being swole, they'd say you looked the exact same. That's because you don't get to have huge muscles by going to the gym harder than everyone else that one time you're motivated enough to go to the gym. You get to have huge muscles by just showing up to the gym every single day for a long period of time. So the slight edge can all be boiled down to this. Success is not the result of doing difficult, extraordinary things, but rather the result of doing unremarkable, relatively easy to do things every single day over a long period of time. When leveraged by time, half a page turns into a book. 45 minutes at the gym turns into a beach body. So if you want to achieve massive progress in your life in any particular area, break it down into a tiny little action, something easy, so easy that you're actually likely to do it. But make sure to do it every single day, because as easy as it is to do, it's just as easy not to do. And doing it or not doing it is the difference between a life of success and one of mediocrity later down the road. You're the answer, son.